time, but I didn't really like this outline. I still don't like it. <laughs> so it's there, but I'm going to move on. Uh, last and last time we did the first two chapters, and I've titled this "Things Solomon Tried." Um, he tried wisdom. He tried pleasure. Tried wine, building projects, slaves, flocks and herds, silver and gold, singers, concubines. I mean, you might have to change the terminology a little bit to bring it up to date, but it's the same thing people are doing today. Uh, the it appears to me that the book of Ecclesiastes is really a book asking the question. If and, and this is, is a little bit difficult to put it this way, but he's asking the question, if we leave God out, um, how should we live our lives? Now, the reason it's difficult to say that is that even as we go through, he mentions God in the middle of the book. But I think it's still in the section where he's talking about actually leaving God out. Well, <laughs> this, is, this is where it gets complicated. Um, the, the book itself has... I have found it's a very difficult book and, and I've puzzled over it for years and, and you'll have to decide whether you think that the approach I'm taking works. To me, it, it solves a lot of problems though. If we understand that all the way up until we get to chapter 12, he's, he's continued to look at the question of if you just look at life here on earth, in other words, under the sun is, is what he says. If you just look at life here on earth, in parentheses, excluding, you know, what's above the earth, God, then what is what is there in life that's good? And it's a very, very important question. It's one that the people around us are are thinking they have the answer for all the time. Um, now, some people around us are just straight atheists. I, I've I've known some. I've worked with some. Um, others are just more practical atheists. They would tell you, sure, I believe in a God. But in fact, their whole lives are lived as if they don't believe that. People have been doing that for centuries. Um, and those choices that Solomon made up there are all choices of a practical atheist. Uh, I mean, he, he would have told you, oh, I, I believe in God. You know, the whole time I was doing this, I believe in God. But what he was really trying to do is find out how can you live life just based on self, really. And, and the philosophy we're going to see as we go through is really... Um, he, he puts it in fancy language, but it's all the way through, it's a life lived based on self. Which is exactly what you're going to do if you're an atheist, whether a, one who really doesn't believe in God or just a practical atheist, that's what, the way you're going to live your life. It's just, you know, what, what's, what's best for me? And the, the result that Solomon ends up with it is a very depressing result. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity, or emptiness, you know, depending on which translation you, you follow. Um, and over and over in the book, he keeps coming back to the emptiness of life. This is very important for us to understand. <coughs> People around us are trying to live their lives without God, 
And many of them have not thought far enough down the road to realize the emptiness of that kind of a life. Now some of these things, you, you hit the end a lot faster than others. And when you, when you live your life based on wine, you see the emptiness really fast. Um, there's, there's been people who, before they turn to the age of 30, they've realized, wow, that is just a terrible way to live my life. Um, although it's easier to get into that kind of life than it is to get out of it, which is true of all these. Now the first one, the wisdom one, the, the, this, this was more the level of the guy I wor- worked with. He's now retired, but I worked with him for decades. Complete atheist. Uh, didn't, I mean, he absolutely didn't believe in God, and, and, and he believed that all morality is just based upon uh, practical considerations. You know, there is no God. Very well read guy, I mean, very smart. You know, I mean, he had a, my understanding is he had a big stack of books next to his bed. He'd read, I assume he's a fast reader because he read a lot. Just <clears throat> pursued wisdom. But he really needed to read what Solomon says about it because even with wisdom, you're going to end up with a dead end. There just is no answer for what's good in life if you leave God out because we were created to serve God. Anything else, it just is not going to fit. So let's take a look now. Chapter 3, I've put up here that the preacher sees not just emptiness in his own life, but emptiness everywhere he looks. Um, and I picked out a few verses to look at. Um, verse one: There is a, an appointed time for everything, and there is a time for every event under heaven. This section, uh, you know, about time to do this, time for that. I mean, there was a popular song back in the '60s based on this, and you know, so you you, you read this and you think, "Oh, this is so wonderful! This is so beautiful!" This is a very pessimistic statement and series of statements that Solomon was making. He's basically saying, I mean, look how he concludes it in verse 9. What profit is there to the worker from that in which he toils? I have seen the task which God has given the sons of men with which to occupy themselves. And, and he says, He has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart, yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. I mean, it's a very pessimistic approach. And if you think about it, Yes, there is a time for all these different things. But if you leave God out, it's a pretty sad thing because you have no control over it. You don't have control over the time you're going to die. You don't have control over when you're going to give birth. And most of these other things you don't have control over. You're just kind of going along for the ride and and there's somebody in control and it's not you and, and you're not really in very close communication with this somebody that's in control. Um, and then verse 16 furthermore I have seen under the sun that in the place of justice there is wickedness and in the place of righteousness there is wickedness and again a very sad picture it's true of course we see this all around us but if you leave God out it's a very sad picture nothing you can do about it life's terrible and then you die I mean that's kind of the the philosophy here Uh, verse 21 who knows that the breath of man ascends upward and the breath of the beast descends downward to the earth? What he's saying is, if you leave God out and just look at people, the way they die looks like the way an animal dies. You can't tell that 
his spirit is going to go to God. And and you know, there's been there's plenty of people on earth today that don't believe that. You know, when when you're dead, you're dead. Um, so God has shut man up into emptiness, and there is no escape. That's kind of what this chapter is saying. Uh, so then, the next chapter I've titled "More Observations on the Emptiness of Life." <laughs> um, verse one. Then I looked again at all the acts of oppression which were being done under the sun, and behold, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and that they had no one to comfort them. And on the side of their oppressors was power, but they had no one to comfort them. Um, so he says, I congratulated the dead who are already dead more than the living who are still living. Talk about a cynical attitude of life, but I mean, that's what you end up with without God. Um, verse 3, but better off than both of them is the one who has never existed, who has never seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. Um, I have seen that every labor and every skill which is done is a result of rivalry between a man and his neighbor. This too is vanity and striving after wind. He's again looking at different philosophies that people have cho- chosen to live their life. And he finds this one, and this is a very popular one. People compete. You know, you've got more than I have, so I'll work harder and get up and catch up. He says it's just vanity, just striving after wind. Then on the other hand, the fool folds his hand and consumes his own flesh. One hand full of rest is better than two fists full of labor and striving after wind. He's just lazy. That doesn't answer it either. <laughs> Solomon keeps he keeps suggesting different things, different ways people have figured out how to live this life, and none of them work. Um, all right. So in the next chapter, the first seven verses, be careful when you come toward God. And see, this is where my take on the book gets a little bit. Um, complicated to explain because what I've said is that this whole section of the book all the way up to chapter 12 is really how to live life without God but he's not really living life without God he's more living the life of a practical atheist and so here he gives advice about God but this is all on a very low level if you read these set, these first seven verses and then compare this with something like the 23rd Psalm, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. There is just no comparison. The, the, the relationship toward God is simply a relationship here of fear. You know, be careful when, you know, when you're around God. It's, he's dangerous. It's true. What he says in these verses is true. He's not, he's not misleading us. But it's, the, it's a very low low level for a person to live on in their relationship with God and it's going to lead to many of these philosophies that he's proposing in, in the, the rest of the book that um, life is just vanity <laughs> that, that's what he says and you can see why when, when you don't have God at the, at the, at the front now, I think Solomon is doing this on purpose because at the very end, he's, he gives the answer. I think he's doing this for, so that people are going to see. And I think it's important that he, he explore all these different avenues. Because if he didn't, someone's going to come along and say, I've got the answer. Solomon never thought of this one. I know what to do. But he, he presents the whole thing. And all kinds of philosophies in here to show that he's considered everything 
Nothing works if you leave God out. That's his point. Um, all right, so the rest of the chapter is um, worldly wisdom concerning oppression and wealth. And, and let me point out, the philosophy of this, of this section is purely selfish. Which is, again, that's the way a person is going to live their lives if they are a practical atheist. Um, he considers, in verse 8, he see, uh, considers oppression and, and, and oppression in high places. And then finally he says in verse 9, After all, a king who cultivates the field is an advantage to the land. The king's a big jerk. He's oppressing the people. But at least it's better than if you didn't have a king. Now, that's very true. I mean, from a worldly standpoint, that's very true. And if you look at countries today that are in the midst of huge revolutions and and fighting and civil war and all that, I think a lot of those people could wish for the days when they had a dictator. It was better off. At least the, the land was getting farmed. But again, this is simply wisdom on the level of the the animal, just just the, nothing to do with God. Um, in verse eleven, he he looks at wealth and he says, "When goods increase, those who consume them increase. So what is the advantage to their owners except to look on?" You think you think well, if I just had more money, I, I'd be better off. And and again, the, the, a lot a lot of people have that view. Um, but what he says is, well, you get more money and there are just more people that are cons- going to consume the money. Come right on in. <clears throat> so then we go into Ecclesiastes chapter 6. And this chapter is about the emptiness of riches. In verse 2, a man to whom God has given riches and wealth and honor so that his soul lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God has not empowered him to eat from them, for a foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity and a severe affliction. Um, So, riches aren't the answer. Or verse 7, All a man's labor is for his mouth, and yet the appetite is not satisfied. (laughs) Interesting observation. You know, we're all the time working to get things to feed our appetites, but our appetites are never satisfied. You You just have to go out the next day and do it all over again. (laughs) <laughs> that, that's the point that he's trying to make here alright so chapter 7 of the still in Ecclesiastes he says wisdom is better than folly but there are just no guarantees in this empty life even the wise person can have things happen to him that he has no control over um, so again a very cynical philosophy and the best that this philosophy can encourage is that we just be stoics. We, we, we must be indifferent to whatever happens. And, and that's really the philosophy that you find in, in this chapter. And it's again a popular philosophy in, in, the, in the Apostle Paul's day you had stoics when he was there in Athens. And, and the stoics attitude was um, whatever happens, whether it's really, really good stuff or really bad stuff, you don't feel it. Well, again, if you leave God out, which this section of the book of Ecclesiastes is deliberately doing that, if you leave God out, then the best you can do is just to try not to let life hurt you too much. (laughs) And that was the Stoics' view. Uh, So, we'll look at verse 2. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to a house of feasting because that is the end of every man and the living takes it to heart. 
The wise person says, well, I need to think about the fact that life is short. Or verse 15, I have seen everything during my lifetime of futility. There is a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there is a wicked man who prolongs his life in his wickedness. It just doesn't always work out the way you think it ought to work out. Again, true. We've observed that. Um, Verse 28. This one I find... This is really cynical. He says, I have found one man among a thousand, but I have not found a woman among all these. Wow. I mean, we we know, obviously, that the Bible teaches there are good women as well as good men. We read the last chapter of Proverbs about the worthy woman. But here's a guy who's living his life without God. We saw in the first couple chapters, I mean, he was he was supplying everything he wanted, including you know many concubines. How how's a guy living like that going to find a worthy woman like you find in Proverbs thirty one? He's not, and and so his own choices have left him out of something that God does give to a, a lot of righteous people. And a couple of verses earlier, he talked about this woman whose heart is snares and nets and whose hands are chains. <laughs> In, in, in the historical part, in Kings and Chronicles, we read that Solomon had 700 wives and 300 concubines. A thousand women total. So I wonder whether when he says, out of a thousand, he's, he's found one man among a thousand, but he hasn't found a woman among all these. If he looks at all his thousand wives, not a, one of them was a worthy woman. Not too surprising if you get the wives where Solomon got them. And if you live your life like Solomon was living. Yeah. Um, verse 29, Behold, I have found only this, that God made men upright, but they have sought out, sought out many devices. <laughs> That's certainly true. Um, then, chapter 8, It is better to accept the way, things the way they are because you have no power to change them. Um, he talks about dealing with kings and, and you know, again, worldly wisdom here. Verse 14, um, there is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. On the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I saw that this too is futility. So I commended pleasure. For there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and to drink and to be merry. And this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of, the, of his life which God has given him under the sun. Uh, again, just, you know, a cynical attitude. You might as well enjoy what you got. And you have no control over it. So, um, chapter 9, this doesn't sound a lot different. Life is full of uncertainty. Um, In verse 10, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might, for there is no activity or planning or knowledge or wisdom in Sheol where you are going. I saw, I again saw under the sun that the race is not to the swift and the battle is not to the warriors and neither is bread to the wise nor wealth to the discerning nor favor to men of ability for time and chance overtake them all. Now if you go to the book of Psalms, it's not going to say time and chance overtakes them all. It's going to say it's in the hand of God. <laughs> so although he sounds like he's saying the same thing we read in the Psalms, it's really an, it, he, he is telling us what the philosophy of the atheist is. It's just time and chance. And, and you know, 
wow, what are you going to do in that case? So verse 16, so I said, wisdom is better than, than strength, but the wisdom of the poor man is despised and his words are not heeded. This is at the end of a story he tells about a man who, who through his wisdom saved the city and then no one appreciated the guy. What's the use is what he's saying. You know, wisdom helped him, but you know, in the end, what did he gain out of it? So in the next chapter, we again have Proverbs of Worldly Wisdom, and, and I've titled this one, Exercise Discretion. For example, verse 4, If the ruler's temper rises against you, do not abandon your position because composure allays great offenses. Well, that's good, good advice. It's not, it's not something that gets us any closer to God, but it is, it is certainly practical. Um, verse 18, through indolence the rafters sag and through slackness the house leaks. What he's saying is lazy people's houses fall down around them. <laughs> that certainly is true. Um, verse 19, men prepare a meal for enjoyment and wine makes life merry and money is the answer to everything. Again, a very worldly attitude. But Solomon is just showing, I've tried it all. You know, if, if you people think you're going to find the answer here, you know, I've tried it. Uh, verse 20, Furthermore, in your bedchamber do not curse a king, and in your sleeping rooms do not curse a rich man, for a bird of the heavens will carry the sound, and the winged creature will make the matter known. Again, practical advice. Be careful what you say and around and who you're around. Uh, and then the last section of Proverbs of Worldly Wisdom is in verse 8, verse of chapter 11, and that's be diligent. Um, the first two verses uh, cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Now, let me mention um, there's different interpretations of, of this. Um, cast your bread on the surface of the waters is a very puzzling thing. And a lot of people have taken this as giving to poor people. Um, the Net Bible, though, um, they 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 think it means um, ship your uh, wheat overseas <laughs> to sell it. <laughs> and to me, the, their interpretation fits the context better. Um, there's nothing that I have found in the entire book about helping anybody but yourself. Um, and dividing your portion of seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Again, it's we're looking at self-centered philosophy here. So, what he's what what he's saying is really what a, a, a if you if you went to a, a, a stockbroker who was advising you in investments, they would say diversify. Don't put all your money in one stock. Buy lots of different stocks. You know. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, and and consider how you know con, you know consider the fact that exporting things overseas is a risky business, but it, it can be very very profitable. Uh, so again, these are practical words of wisdom for someone who is living their life without God. And so finally, in verse eight. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all, let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be futility. And that actually ends the, um, the pessimistic part of the book. That, that book. The pessimistic part lasts just a little bit less than 11 chapters. 
And we finally have the solution to the empty view, and that is begin with a proper view of God. Um, up to this point, self has been the starting point for the philosophy. We need to make God the starting point. And, and so in chapter 12, verse 1, remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. If you live your life the way Solomon tried to live it in the first 11 chapters, when you get old, it's going to be way too late to find God. You just you 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 don't have any capability of enjoying him. And then verse thirteen, the conclusion when all has been heard is, fear God and keep His commandments, because this applies to every person. For God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or evil. That's a flying trip through the book of Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Any questions or observations? All right. Um, now, the next book is not pessimistic. <laughs> Song of Solomon. Uh, well, look again where we are. Uh, we're in the Old Testament. We just finished this book here. You can't read it, but that's Ecclesiastes. We have one more to go here. Song of Solomon in the section called Poetry. There's five books of poetry. Uh, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. We're going to do Song of Solomon this morning. <clears throat> and then we'll be ready for the major prophets of the book of Isaiah. Um, well, um, before I get into the, the outline, let me just talk a little bit about the Song of Solomon. This, this is a book that has puzzled people too, from a different in a different sense than the book of Ecclesiastes, of course. Um, clearly, it, it is a song about romant, romantic love. It, in fact, it's it's multiple songs. It, I mean, the book just says song, song. There's a number of different songs, and different people through the ages, people had different ideas of what to make of this. Um, if you just read it right on the surface. It's an amazingly explicit love poem. Um, and um, it could even be worse, but the author has used euphemisms in certain places to, so that it doesn't get just uh, too, too in your face, I guess we could say. And that has puzzled people what to do about I mean, there... There's no real talk about God in the book. It's just these two people in love with each other. Though I think God is, um, is God's understood in the book. It's not it's certainly not the like Ecclesiastes. I, I don't mean that. But it's um, I think it's a book designed to teach people that sex within marriage is a blessing from God. It's not to be ashamed of. But sex outside of marriage is very destructive. Now, you have to read a little bit carefully to catch the second part of that, but we'll look at that as we go through. Um, I mean, the Bible teaches from beginning to end that sex is to be reserved solely for marriage. Um, God created Adam and Eve, and they were, they were married, and that was fine what they did together. 
Um, when we try to take sex and put it somewhere else outside of marriage, um, we sin against God and, and, and it's a very destructive thing. And We're living in a, in a time in society where that's become very, very common. Um, in fact, people find it rather surprising. You say, well, you know, God doesn't like that for you to live together and not be married. Um, when I was growing up, which has been a few decades now, but when I was growing up, most people understood that you you need to be married if you're going to have sex. Now, I don't mean that they all, they all obeyed that. There are plenty of people that that were disobeying that command, but they knew that they were doing wrong, and they did it uh, in hiding. But the the '60s kind of changed all of that. The '60s was this big time of um, revolution, rebellion, and, and um, make love, not war, and hippies, and all of this. And the and the attitude came about that um, Christians think sex is dirty, and um, you know they're all wet, and we think sex is clean, and, and, and we just do it all the time with anybody we want to, and, and that was what the behavior was going on back in, in the '60s, and, and it has continued really until now. Um, this book helps correct that that error. It shows that God created sex and it's it's fine and and it's it's beautiful, um, but it has to be done in, in its place. Now let let me let me also just address for for the married people. Um, although the whole book is about marital sex. And, and it's a beautiful thing and it's a good thing. Anything that we make our sole purpose in life other than God is going to be destructive. It's idolatry, it's a sin against God, and it will, it will be a sin against ourselves too. Um, just because two people are married doesn't mean that they can, they can now behave like sex is all that matters. It is not. They will destroy themselves. They will destroy their relationship. They will destroy their relationship with God if they think that they're going to get more out of sex than what God intended. <coughs> we live in a society that thinks that sex is almost all that matters. I mean, it, it, really, it just is the highest. I mean, for, for, for American society in general, they just think that sex is like the highest thing there is. And they are destroying our society because of that philosophy. So, as we go through the book of Solomon, I just want to caution you to keep it in its proper place. It's not intended to, to, to tell you, this is everything, this is it. But it is intended to say, God created it, it's fine, it's good. Now, in, in past centuries, there have been some very unusual takes on, the book, on this book. Um, the, in the early centuries of Christianity, the, the, the interpretation of this book was generally that it was um, a, a, a um, what, what do you call it? When it's kind of a parable. A what? Allegory. Yeah, it was an allegory. <clears throat> yeah, I think of the word parable, but allegory. It's an allegory of the love of Christ and the church. Now, you can kind of understand why those early guys would have been saying that because they were living in an era when 
a preacher was not allowed to be married. Uh, it, it was a sex, even in marriage, was viewed as a really bad thing. And, and, and you so pollute yourself that you can't be a preacher. You can't be an elder in the congregation. Um, so here you have these single guys who are trying to explain the Song of Solomon. <laughs> what are they going to do with it? Well, they, they turn it into allegory. In one sense, it could be an allegory, but that's not why it was written and that's not its primary purpose. And so I'm going to look at it from, from what I think is the reason it was, it was originally written, what, it, what is its primary purpose. <clears throat> so we'll look at the outline. And I got this outline from, from this book, um, Solomon on Sex by Joseph C. Dillow, um, which is, is, I think is a good book. I don't know that he's right on everything, but this is his outline, and, and, and I don't find any real problems with it. Um, I mean, nobody's going to have all the answers, but <clears throat> he treats the Song of Solomon as kind of like a play. It's a drama. Um, the only problem is that in the drama itself, it doesn't say who's talking. If you could read Hebrew, you'd have a better idea because when the Hebrew says you, there's one you if the you is a man, there's another you if the you is a woman. That would make it a lot easier if, if it was in English that way. So you have, for, for us English readers, we have to either look at the, the marginal notes. If you look at your marginal notes, you'll notice in verse 2 from the New Exodus it says bride. For verse 4 it says chorus. For verse 5 it says bride. For verse 8 it says bridegroom. Or if you have the New International Version, it puts those right in, in the in the right in mixes right in the text, so that it makes it a lot easier to to read the the drama. But here's what this is the outline that our author has suggested, and I'm going to go through it a point at a time. So we're going to end up with the same thing you just saw on the board. Um, the first 14 verses the author suggests are the wedding day. Verse 4, Draw me after you and let us run together. The king has brought me into his chambers. Or verse 10, uh, He's saying back to her, Your cheeks are lovely with ornaments, your neck with strings of beads. They're just enjoying each other on this wedding day. Then in the next section, uh, you have the bridal chamber. Um, starting in verse 15 and going on through chapter 2, verse 7. Um, so in, in chapter 2, verse 3, the bride is, is looking at this man she's married. She says, Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. In his shade I took great delight and sat down, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. They're, they're enjoying each other, and, and this is fine. Verse 6, Let his left hand be under my head, and his right hand embrace me. Now in verse 7, we have a, a verse that's repeated several times in the book, and I think this is very important. Though I don't think the New American Standard translates it as well as I would like. I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you do not arouse or awaken my love until she pleases. Now other translations say that you do not awaken love until it pleases. And I think that works better. I think what she's saying, and I can't prove this, but I think the point she's trying to make is, She has waited for a long time to get to this point. I mean, she had to go through dating the man, being engaged, all that, waiting, waiting, and now she's married, and they're enjoying 
this time in the bedroom together. And she's making this aside to the um, kind of the chorus. You know how in Shakespeare's plays they have a chorus. The, the daughters of Jerusalem are this chorus. She's addressing in this play. And she's saying, don't push it. Don't rush into love before it's time or you'll be sorry. And this is kind of the, this is a parallel to what you have in the book of Proverbs. The book of Proverbs is written to a young man and it's warning the young man about illicit sex. In the early chapters, you remember that. The, the, the woman is trying to trap the guy and all that. Well now, this book is much more written to a young woman. I mean, um, it doesn't say it's a young woman, but young women are the ones who like the romance books. And this is a real romance book. And so she's giving this aside. You know, she's got to this beautiful place, which is, you know, every young lady would love to get to that place. She's saying, "You're not going to get here if you don't take your time and do it properly." It basically, you know, sleeping around isn't the answer. Moving in with a guy you're not married to is not the answer. You're going to have to have to be patient. <clears throat> All right, and then in in chapter two, verse eight. <clears throat> The author says it's a time of preparation. We've gone back in time before they were married. And this is the time when they're dating and, and, and probably engaged. Listen, my beloved, behold, he is coming, climbing on the mountains, leaping on the hills. Here's a visit. The guy's come to visit her. She's not living with him yet. Um, and, and in verse 15, she, she, one, of her, one of the things she says is, catch the foxes for us, the little foxes that are ruining the vineyards while our vineyards are in blossom. Now, she was a farm girl, and, and, and she knew that foxes tear up the vines and, and ruin your, your vineyard. You've got to trap them, you've got to get them out. But now she's using that in, in, in symbolic terms to talk about the relationship. She and her, her fiancé have this relationship, and they've got some problems they need to deal with. The little foxes are going to kind of eat away at the relationship, and the time to deal with that is before they get married. Now, not that they won't have plenty to deal with afterwards, but um, they're using this as a time of preparation. And so then at the end of this scene, in chapter 3, verse 5, again she says, I adjure you, O daughter of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or by the hinds of the field, that you will not arouse or awaken love until it pleases. And so again she's saying, you know, she's looking back to her dating days and again saying, sex doesn't belong there. Keep sex where God put it if you want to have a good, happy relationship. In fact, they've done studies of people that have lived together before they got married. And those people are more likely to get a divorce after they, they get married than the people that waited until they got married. And, and our society thinks, but that's crazy. You know, if they spent all this time practicing together, no. God's way is the way to make it work. And, and that's what this lady is saying. Um, so then we, it, we jump forward now to the bridal procession the, the wedding procession in verses, chapter 3 verse 6 to 11 um, in verse 11 go forth O daughters of Zion and gaze on King Solomon with the crown with which his mother has crowned him on the day of his wedding and on the day of his gladness of heart so now we are ready for the wedding night in chapter 4 and going on beginning chapter 5. Um, how beautiful you are, my darling, how beautiful you are. Your eyes are like doves behind your veil. 
Your hair is like a flock of goats that have descended from Mount Gilead. That doesn't sound quite as nice in our language as it did back then, but um, he was trying to be complimentary. <laughs> um, you know, married men, you know, adjust to suit the circumstances. Then <laughs> um, he goes on, you know, just describing this, her, her whole body and um, in great detail. He and, and obviously, she, I'm sure, she enjoys the fact that he, he likes her and, and, and is delighted with her. Um, in verse 10, how beautiful is your love, my sister, my bride? How much better is your love than wine and the fragrance of your oils and all kinds of spices? Your lips, my bride, drip honey. Honey and milk are under your tongue. And the fragrance of your garments is like the fragrance of Lebanon. And then at the end of, chapter, at the, end of the first verse of chapter 5, he says, I have drunk my wine and my milk. Which is, I mean, he's just, this is poetic language. You, I mean, you understand what he's talking about here. And then you have this um, other voice here. With a, the, we don't know who it is. It just says, Eat, friends, drink and abide deeply, O lovers. Now, I would suggest that in, a, in one sense, that's probably the voice of God. God is approving of what they're doing on their wedding night here. And, and, and He created this to be an, a, a joy, and they, and they are enjoying it. It's good. It's fine. And, and, and um, so He congratulates them and, and encourages them. Now, life is not all peaches and cream, even after you get married. And so, this this lady has a dream of love refused. Um, and of course, I mean, you, you, there's all kinds of jokes about you know the wife is always having a headache and that kind of thing. I mean, it's kind of a classic thing. But there are real problems in in the sexual relationship in a marriage, and this problem is being addressed in the form of a dream. She's asleep, and she hears this voice. Of, her beloved is knocking. Open up. And, and she answers them, No, you know, I'm already in bed. I've washed my feet. I can't come, come go across the floor, open the door to you. You know, well, I mean, you understand that in, she's, you, this is symbolic language for a problem in the sexual relationship. And so she goes on and works, it and, and works on this. Um, and, and finally, in verse 6, she opened up, but then. The, her beloved had gone. You know, and this is again, it's a dream, but it's it's trying to, sh- to to talk about some real problems that you have. And so she's having to work through this. Then solving sexual problems is what our author is titled starting in verse nine. See, she's at she in verse eight she says, I adjure you, O daughter of Jerusalem, if you find my beloved as to what you will tell him, for I am lovesick. He, he wanted to get going and she didn't want to get going and so he left and so now she wanted to find him. And so they ask her this question, what kind of beloved is your beloved, O most beautiful among women? What kind of beloved is your beloved that you thus adjure us? And so she starts answering and she describes him in the same terms she had used earlier on in, in, in their wedding night. And she's... She's finding the reasons why she originally fell in love with this guy, and so she's working on solving these problems in the in the marriage uh, by by being reminded of of, how, of what started it all. Then we have what our author calls the dance of the Mahanaim. At the end of verse thirteen, why should you gaze at the Shulamite as at the dance of the two companies? Some translations say at the at the dance of the Mahanaim. No one's really sure what the word means, 
but it appears that she's actually doing a, a dance for her husband. This is a private dance. And, and in chapter 7, he starts describing her, starting with her feet and going up in great detail. And I won't go in. I won't, some of this isn't really something you want to read in mixed company. Um, but it was fine for them. I mean, they were married. They were enjoying what God had given them, um, what He had created from the very beginning. Um, in verse 10, she says, I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. She likes for him to like her. In chapter 8, verse 4, I want you to swear, O daughters of Jerusalem, do not arouse or awaken love until it pleases. That's the last time in the book that that, that, that phrase is found. But again, you notice that each, each we've three times now, a different phase of the book, she's made this same um, sermon, basically a short sermon, Keep sex where it belongs. Don't bring it in when 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 it when it's it's not in a situation that God has intended it to be. And so then the book closes out with a vacation in the country. Um, they go back to where she grew up. They have a vacation together, and um, they're just kind of talking things over. And in verse eight, and this. This is kind of the chorus maybe saying this. It's not, it's not either the bride or the bridegroom. They say, we have a little sister and she has no breasts. In other words, she's very young. What shall we do for our sister on the day when she is spoken for? Someone wants to marry her. What, what are we going to do? Because they're talking about engagement. It's going to take a while between the time of engagement and when she's married. Now here's the answer. If she has a wall, we will build on her a battlement of silver. But if she has a door, we will barricade her with planks of cedar. What they're saying is, there's basically two kinds of women. You know, there's some women that are very open. They're like a door, dangerous. You know, because some things you shouldn't open your door for, uh, and that's what they're talking about here. Others are a wall. I mean, they have the fortitude to, to handle it, and they're saying we're we're going to deal differently in accordance with what her character is. And so here's the bride now speaking, and she says, "I was a wall." And my breasts were like towers. Then I became in his eyes as one who finds peace. Solomon had a vineyard at Baal Haman. He entrusted the vineyard to caretakers. Each one was to bring a thousand shekels of silver for his fruit. My very own vineyard, and again she's talking about her own body really, my very own vineyard is at my disposal. The thousand shekels are for you, Solomon, and two hundred are for those who take care of its fruit. Now, what she's saying is, looking back, I was a wall. I didn't give in to the temptation to have sex outside of marriage. I reserved it for my husband, and I'm glad that I did. And so the, 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 this, the whole song serves uh, two different purposes. One is, it, it, it's God putting His stamp of approval on marital love. And the other is the warning that if you want what's beautiful like this, you're going to have to do it God's way and be willing to have patience and self-restraint and wait till the proper time. Any last questions or comments? All right, well, appreciate everyone's participation this morning.